Welcome to episode 25 of MADE, the, pod- the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're doing an all-news episode. Let's continue the conversation. Hi everyone, welcome back to MADE. With me as always are my co-host Claudia Berrigan. Hello. Ray Peña. How you doing? And I'm Jose Valcarcel. Well, guys, we're back. Uh, we've been off a couple of weeks just because of scheduling. It's been hard to get together to record, but we're back. Yeah, and um, 25, I guess, if you count all the weeks that we've been off, we've been doing this for a little over six months now. Yeah, yeah, it's half a year already. Yeah. Somehow seems longer. <laughs> Do you think yeah. so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess because of the maker fairs and everything, sometimes the, like the weeks feel longer because we're like doing it on the road and stuff. Yeah. 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 Three seasons have passed. <laughs> Three seasons have passed. <laughs> well, I almost. Guess we're so. in the middle of fall, so. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I still have a hard time thinking of things in seasons because I grew up in Florida when there's only one season. So. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was having this conversation with somebody. Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, um, I thought growing up that the seasons were a lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was a complete fabrication that was not real and people were lying about it. Right. And so they had these made up seasons, and because I had no point of reference, I thought there were five seasons. <laughs> five? I, I thought there was five, and here's, here was why I thought it was five. They kept telling me that there was spring, summer, fall, autumn, and winter. You kept telling me that all the time. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? There's only one season. <laughs> so I really, I honestly, really thought there was there was quote unquote allegedly five seasons, and that it was all a lie. Well, and, and here's the thing for me, because I agree with you in the, the lie thing, because you know I grew up the first first nine years of my life I was in another country, and I would watch all this stuff from America, and you know they talked about oh the fall and the leaves changing color, and I was like. This never happens here. And then I moved to the United States. I'm like, finally, I'm going to see all the seasons. I moved to Florida, where that doesn't happen anyways. Nope. So. And I thought maple leaves uh, and maple trees, I thought they were a lie, too. Because <laughs> you don't see those down there. Yeah, like South Dakota. I think South Dakota's a lie. They're just making that up. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. I don't, do you know anybody from South Dakota? Just Dakota. Yeah, I don't think so. No, there's a North Dakota. <laughs> anyway. Um... So yeah, so we've had a couple of weeks off. We're gonna, we had planned to do just an all news episode because we haven't been doing a lot of news in the last few times we were recording the show. So I think we're just gonna jump right into doing some news. If um, unless you guys have, unless you have some season related stuff to say, Claudia. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, it's just it's just nice that you know you can see a nice foliage change and kind of tells you that you know we're moving, moving along. Which yeah. Is good. No, I think it's cool. I don't have that. I don't have the. I don't think things look more beautiful just because the leaves are changing. But, but yeah, I get it. So, all right. Well, let's just right to the show then. All right. So, oh, our all news episode. We've got quite a few stories to get through, but we'll just sort of jump around. If we don't get to all of them, I think it'll be okay. Right. We'll. Uh, We'll just randomly... Yeah, I think it'll be fine. Now, some of these are videos, uh, so the videos will be in the description 
whether you're listening to this on SoundCloud or or any other media, we'll have that in the description so you guys can check it out. Um, so we'll just pick one at random. Yeah, but um, before we do that, we just you know the the news are all about um, what made is about, right? Like mm -hmm. they they cover the subject areas of made. So yeah, yeah you know, manufacturing, design, architecture, design. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, you know, like an equity sprinkled throughout all of them. Right. Yeah, we're not gonna cover the elections or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> <No>. <laughs> news related to what we normally talk about. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's been killed already. Yeah. Yeah, and it's almost over. So. Yeah. Almost. Thank oh, goodness. Exactly. <laughs> all right, so let's just jump right in and let's go to let's go to one of the video ones first. So this is I found this on Facebook. It came up on my feed, and I was like, oh, let's just talk about it. Um, and you'll notice when I add a story here, it's because either something bothers me about it or something resonates with me about it. <laughs> so this is the modular, oh, yeah, the modular home is what this is called. And it's a video, it's an animation, a computer generated animation of a house made out of a shipping container. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you guys can watch it without the sound because the, the music as we were talking about before recording is a little epic sounding for, <laughs> for this kind of video. But I'm interested to think what you guys thought about this this video before I give too much about what I thought about it. Like, what do you what do you think about it, Claudia? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's it's a nice pop up prefabricated uh, portable house from uh, shipping containers, right? So, um, although like the shipping container materials get lost once you start. Uh, in the video, you'll see that it's just it's, they basically fade away in a way, mm -hmm. which is kind of hard to believe because the material of a shipping container is just so uh, prominent. But I like that because of that. It makes it very light, like it's a very light structure, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I like that about it. Um, but I thought about it more even beyond the housing, or like you know a, a, a yeah. A, portable house I thought about it more like a pop-up restaurant mm. that could you know come up and you know like maybe or a pop-up come camping vehicle or something like that um and then I had questions obviously of like how are the electrical connections <laughs> done in something like mm -hmm. this and how about plumbing needs you just don't <laughs> you just never use the bathroom <laughs> yeah I mean those are some of the issues I had with it what about you Ray what do you think about it um, well, I thought the design was, was kind of interesting in the fact that it's transformative, uh, but I, I would agree with Claudia, the, uh, the base shipping container is completely lost. And, um, but, you know, basically this is a pre-manufactured uh, concept design using as a base building block the pre-manufactured shipping container. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for me, it's probably the most inefficient use of the shipping container. Most of it ends up getting cut away. Uh, leaving you to fill in a whole lot more space. I think that that uh, keeping in mind that this is a, a prefab kind of concept, you're almost in this particular case with this design, you're almost better off starting from scratch, because so much work will be required to deconstruct the shipping container. Uh, that and and then of course to build everything else around it. That I think you can skip that work of deconstruction, and uh, start from scratch. When I look at it, for me, it looks like a design exercise for what can we do with a shipping container. Uh, and these kind of exercises I've seen before, they've popped up many times. Some that were even like two-story that mm -hmm. would, uh, you know, uh, 
telescope out in all directions. So uh, I, I have mixed feelings about it. From a point of view of the what can we transform a shipping container into, I think it's interesting, uh, but but kind of inefficient and impractical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, that, I mean, I think much like you said, it's sort of a design exercise, but to me it's not even a very good design exercise because it's not even taking into account some of the basic things you need to do to have a house. It's sort mm-hmm. of it's sort of sold as this portable, almost like a portable home, as well as a pre-manufactured home. But you know, once you see it start come together, and you see the kitchen sort of slides out of the middle of this container into a location, with like, like as you guys already brought up, how is the plumbing hooked up? How does the electrical work? How does any of this stuff work? Um, and it's not, none of that has been thought out. Even none of that has been thought out, even as far as how these glass windows would all slide together. Like there's all of a sudden there's no frame and it's just this big pane of glass that was folded in together somehow. Yeah, you know it's like it's done in such an unrealistic way, and it's it's being sort of you know I guess that's what bothers me that it gets put in Facebook and people like are amazed by it and it sort of gets put out as if it was a possibility, but it's just it's they're selling this lie <laughs> the lie i like that yeah, it's a lie that that's a little selling. dramatic but yeah it's all about the feelings yeah yeah i mean it's they're they're showing something that's not possible yeah you know and when you think about it it's a 20-foot shipping container that they're expanding three times the size you're mm-hmm. better off getting three shipping containers right you know and then working mm-hmm. with that yeah that, and this idea of a glass house and we're all familiar with several different glass houses uh you know that we studied, uh, the glass house is a very difficult house to live in. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, it is a beautiful thing, but not practical. Yeah, I mean, you have to have like acres of land so that people so that you can live in it. Yeah, and if you're posing this as if a bunch of people have this, you're going to have a a trailer park of these things. I mean, maybe in a colony of exhibitionists. That's a works, that's but. a good analogy, trailer park. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, and I don't have anything against, well, I mean, I don't have anything against trailer parks. I, you know, I grew up knowing people that lived in trailer parks. It's not a bad thing per se. It's just this design is not practical in any way, shape, or form. Privacy is important. Right. It's just not a practical thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a factor of living. Privacy is part of that, that this ignores completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see this as if you watched the superhero movies. This is like Iron Man's suit in those movies. He can basically do whatever it wants. Yeah, you know, it's like it's magic essentially. Yeah. You know, he can. When it first the first movie came out, it, it was it sort of looked very realistic and it functioned in a more realistic manner. Now he can go in and out of it however he wants. You know, it, it summon it comes at will. Out of nowhere. Exactly, that's what this thing is doing. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, okay, well, good. So that that's what we think about that. Yeah. Uh, let's see another one. Um, here's here's. So we've covered a lot of 3D printers throughout the year so far. Um, and one is, I think, uh, Ray, you added this one. And it's uh, an article about the best 3D printers of 2016. Yeah. And uh, the reason I added this is because I've been thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I, I'd, I'd like to get started uh, in it with a 3D printer. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> I guess we'll get to yours later on at the end, but... Uh, you know, something I want to get started, and you start looking at it, and there's literally hundreds of choices. There's so mm. many different choices, all these different manufacturers, you know, Chinese and 
Italian and you know some that are assembled here in the United States, it is a it's virtually impossible for you to pinpoint you know how much quality you're willing to buy and how much you're willing to spend and have a reliable machine. I mean, it's just all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you know what? Let me see if somebody's already done this. And I and I looked it up. I looked up you know best 3D printers of 20s and luckily someone had already done it and uh, they did it this month. It's um, uh, PC it's, magazine? Yeah, PC Magazine. Uh, it says November 7th on it, uh, but I'll tell you that that is not true because I looked this up about two weeks ago. I think that they uh, are lying about the date. Anytime you look at it, it just refreshes mm-hmm. that They're date. Lying. It's a lie, yeah, because when I looked it up a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was a different date. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, um, the one that I was personally thinking, I don't know if I should even mention it. I'm not, I, I won't mention it. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to be swayed because of uh, what, what I'm thinking about. But uh, the one I'm thinking about it, uh, was on this list and um, very well reviewed. And it had some, uh, you know, hands-on reviewers f- uh, from YouTube. And I'm like, well, I, I, I can afford that to, to experiment, you know, just mm-hmm. try a little experiment. So uh, I hope that, uh, that, you know, this becomes useful for somebody because it was useful for me to help yeah. at least narrow down your choices. No, I mean, I think it's useful to to a degree, um, because I'll tell you, I've used, I was looking at the list, I've used two of the ones on here, and then we've seen a couple of the different things that we've been to, Yeah. Um, and, like, I'll say the Ultimaker 2, it's a great printer, when I used it, it's very good resolution and everything, but uh, it also happens to be at the place that I've used it at it also, eventually it would it broke down so yeah. you know there and i think people need to really whether you spend two hundred dollars or you spend three thousand dollars it's going to be work to making it it's just going to be work you have to do to get it to work properly in the way you want it it's just a reality with these machines at this yeah. point so but yeah i mean i think this is a good list from what i know of them and what the ones i've seen yeah and and my thing was something you know affordable just to get me started. Yeah. Uh, you know, once I get a, a little time under my belt, I can look for something mm-hmm. better. So I was looking for something, you know, five hundred dollars and under. Yeah. And you yeah, know, and just a couple of those here. Yeah, exactly. And just yeah. it just to uh, get my feet wet because I haven't done any three D printing yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I can probably look into something a little bit uh, bigger, like mm-hmm. maybe um, the one we saw from Wasp. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, the big one the big one yeah I would say though for you because you're so handy and you're able to do to fix things and put things together much easier than say the average person that's going to go look at a printer I don't know that you should get any of this I think you should get one of the kits that you can put together yourself and you can tweak with and mess with uh-huh. but but I mean not all of these are good printers I think these are more sort of off the shelf things yeah, for people that are not as handy. Yeah, and that you know that's on this list. There isn't any of those three right. uh, D uh, printer kits that you assemble right. yourself and all that, right. because the reality is you get more for your money that way. Right. Yeah. None of that are on the list. Yeah. Yeah. What about did you? What do you think about this in general, Claudia? Well, I appreciated the format of the list. I mean, more than anything, I looked at the. It's sort of like Consumer Reports. Uh, type of posting, you know, like, and then I really appreciated the specs. Mm. Um, because for someone like me, who is not, you know, like I'm, I'm on the other end of the spectrum of Ray, um, understanding and being able to compare 
printers, 3D printers, like you would compare regular printers almost, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Based on its specs and the cost and the ratings, um, it's a good first start. Because then the next thing that I would do after this is look at the reviews. And, you know, a lot of these are sold on Amazon. And that's, to me, the, the, the beauty of Amazon, the fact that you can compare. Um, you can read people's commentary on, you know, oh, well, this one breaks a lot. This one doesn't do this. This one doesn't do that. And then you can, you know, like narrow down what you need. And that's for, like, the average, average person who is, um, who doesn't even understand, you know, like, the different technologies behind it. So, you know, I can go back and try to find what is a diffuse filament fabrication, you know? Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? And that's something important that I need to be looking at whenever I'm, um, what, if I'm deciding to buy a 3D printer. Um, the weight is even important to me, for example. And the that's weight of the machine? The, yeah, and they have that. Yeah. The weight of the machine. Um, to me, it's important because it's, you know, like, if you, let's say you are, you are a student in design and you don't have that much space, right? And then, you know, like, if you're in a dorm or if you're not in a dorm, but if you're in a small room that you share with other people, then, you know, like, can you put it in the closet, you know, mm-hmm. in certain places, how big it is? I mean, I think it's, it's, those specs are important. No, I can understand that, and I've actually seen a f- uh, quite a few people that make custom cabinets for their three D printers once they've gotten it because of reasons of being able to feed the the filament better and and being able to store the different filaments. You end up with you they end up making like cabinets specifically for the printer as well. So knowing the weight in that sense and the size of it could help you to be more organized and efficient with your space. So yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Cool. Uh, I like it. I know you said you were, I think what you had started getting at is you were going to ask about the 3D printer that I've ordered. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you still don't have it, do you? Uh, no, I still don't have it. But, I mean, I also didn't. You think Colin and I had this argument the other day. Cause, you know, argument, when, no, it's this. Well, <laughs> discussion, sure. Um, because I didn't, we didn't order this 3D printer from a company like Ultimaker or MakerBot or whatever. We, you know, it wasn't a company that was sort of set up. We, we got it, we're, we've gotten it through Kickstarter. And we were backing a company that, because that's what you do when you go Kickstarter. I don't know how many people have backed something on Kickstarter. But I think the rule of thumb when you get yourself into Kickstarter is that you're not buying a product. You're funding a, an idea or a company or, or funding the, a product to get off the ground. So you can't necessarily expect it to arrive like you would if you're, ordering something from Ultimaker, you know? Yeah. Um, so these guys have had some delays. They are shipping here in the middle of November. We're in November, right? Yeah, in the middle of November. They're going to start the shipping process, and luckily they're starting their shipping with the USA. So we're going to get our machine before most, uh, before a bunch of other people are. Um, and I've said the name before. I'm, I don't want to keep saying the name over and over because I haven't used the machine yet, so I don't want to act as if I'm sponsoring the machine. Once yeah. I get maybe more use out of it, I, I feel comfortable doing that. But right now, I don't know how it's going to be yet. So, Yeah, and what I would say is like a little bit of the argument was that, um, I mean, we're, we're lucky. I consider ourselves lucky or a little bit privileged in the fact that we don't need this particular 3D printer for a specific purpose other than our creative uh, endeavors, right? And our self-driven creative endeavors. But if... If we were a nonprofit organization or a community-based organization that we 
wanted to prototype something and uh, we couldn't afford to buy some of you know like like this PC like the you know like this chart shows like something even below 500 um, if our budget was more limited time is money you know and waiting for something for so long and it's while I understand it's a Kickstarter uh, it's also a product right and it doesn't necessarily vouch in the best way for that particular company and you know by now we could have already bought a printer and already started using it and if our livelihood depended on it or if our work depended on it then we would be at a disadvantage because it, it, it's taking so long and I don't necessarily think that these companies some of these companies in Kickstarter think about it that way because it's such a risk you know it's a high-risk um, endeavor from both the produ the producers of the, the, the you know the ones that are making these products and the ones that are funding the the, the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and I don't want to rehash the argument, but I mean I agree with what you're saying. I think if we were in that situation, we wouldn't have ordered it. We wouldn't have gotten it through Kickstarter, because I think when somebody orders something from Kickstarter, they need to think less of it as I'm ordering it as much as um an investor almost in that company. Yeah. When you're an investor in a company, you're taking a chance either way. Yeah. In this yeah, case, the payoff is you get the, the printer. If the company fails, you get nothing <laughs> and yeah. you lose the money. <laughs> so th that's really what it is, you know? Yeah. So, and it's good for people to understand that, right? Like right, the yeah. difference between the two because yeah. some people will buy it in the, in, with the premise that I'm mentioning. Oh, yeah, and people that have had... Again, I don't want to rehash, but because this product has delays, when you read through the comments in the Kickstarter for this particular company, you see quite a few people that, even though they've used Kickstarter a lot, still sort of approach it as if it was a store, and they think of it like yeah. if it was like like if they're shopping at Walmart. You know, Walmart doesn't make anything; they just sell other stuff, mm -hmm. and they think that that's the what that's what Kickstarter is, but it's not. You know? No. So, yeah. Anyway, all right, on to the next story. Yeah. Back on track. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's see. I love having our arguments and <laughs> on our podcast. At least it's related. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, that is a non-typical discussion. Right. Exactly. This, this is basically what our household is mm -hmm. like. <laughs> All right. Ray, I know you like big churches, don't you? <laughs> oh, that's well, the funniest thing you've said so far. Yeah. No, I know you don't, but I think you'd, you'd probably do like this big church. And uh, so this is a quick story about uh, La Sagrada Familia, which is uh, a large cathedral in Barcelona, Spain. Um, and I found this interesting, one, because I, I, I am actually quite fond of... Big churches. Know, well, yes, I, I, am big, I am fond of big churches. <laughs> but uh, I'm fond of Gaudi's architecture, and uh, if you guys are not familiar with Gaudi's architecture, you should definitely start, just do a little research on it and see just how unusual it is and how organic it was for his time. But what I found interesting about this story was that it's sort of like a zoning dispute that's come up, or a, not so much a zoning dispute, but a dispute about um, the permit to build this cathedral that's been under construction for over 100 years. Yeah. yeah, it's actually you know? funny. So it was quite interesting that they're having this dispute, and it's mentioned in the article that you know they're building under this permit that was issued in 1885, before this part of the city became part of Barcelona, even. 
Um, so I just found it interesting because of that. I don't know. What do you what do you think about this article, Ray? Well, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, we studied uh, this particular building um, in uh, in school when we were going to architecture school. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see the <laughs> this I guess uh, permitting slash bureaucratic issues that they're having. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, it's 130 134 years in construction. And for our listeners who may not know this, uh, cathedrals could take hundreds of years. I mean, it wasn't yeah. unusual for it to take 200 years to build a cathedral. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that it's taken 134 years, although it sounds unusual to us, it's not really that unusual. Um, the, uh, I do find his uh, Gaudi's art, organic architecture, and he did a lot of uh, sculpture and all that. Uh, he designed every little corner of this, mm-hmm. and I find that interesting, not necessarily beautiful, but interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that for this, uh, you know, what we consider maybe one of his masterpieces, to be uh, stunted <laughs> by right. a bureaucratic office, it's a little funny. Um, yeah. It's a little bit funny. I don't, personally, I don't see why they're even continuing to build it. Um it's a it's like an for me it's an unnecessary dispute um interesting because this construction has not been a secret they've been right. doing this for so long it's not a secret yeah. why is there a dispute uh, so in yeah, that it's regard not, it's <laughs> it's not somebody's backyard where they're like doing something illegal right like you can't exactly <laughs> so why is there even yeah. a dispute and then yeah. on the other hand uh why do they even need to build another you know uh, i forget how big it's a whole other wing i think mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget how big they said it was. Yeah, well, I mean they're too far in now; they can't stop. <laughs> well, they, well, you know, and from a from a planning perspective, uh, you know, 134 years is like, yes, it's reasonable for for a cathedral, but life keeps going within 134 years, and people have needs. The communities have needs, and around surrounding the the, the cathedral, which Jose and I have visited, mm-hmm. it, there's you know like full-on communities there you know there's restaurants nearby um it's also a you know you have to think of barcelona not being it's well zoned there are it has its areas where new development is encouraged along the water you know like that tech you know the, the the tech zone the heavy business zone and then a lot a lot of preservation um land uses so the, the cathedral, as it when you see it from far away, it does stand out because it's in an area, it's in a historical area. Um, the article mentions that the new wing or, you know, and it's also about purist <laughs> design, right? Because they're trying to stick to the same plan that he, that, mm. that he had in, you know, 1865, is it? 85. 85, 1885. And this... If you stick to it, it will displace 3,000 people, mm-hmm. 3,000 residents that have been living there. And it's not just them, but it's also all of their um, their generations that were behind, you know, before them. And their future generations that, you know, they, they live in this area. That's their community. So to displace just because of the purism of of architecture, it's, it's kind of silly. And I, and I can see why, because of that, it becomes a zoning issue i think it would be a zoning issue even here in the u.s if something like this were to happen now the cathedral they should finish it because it is once you get there and you actually see it you do see the the beauty in it 
Yeah, I think the cathedral is definitely a marvel of architecture at this point. Um, and I think you do have to finish it. I don't know about the plaza. There's plenty of plaza space around the thing as, as it is already. Yeah, there's no um, need to extend it. You can... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I get what you're saying with the life goes on. I mean, we just had that similar things happen in the city. I was just working on a on a house where, you know, traditionally in D.C., because I've done this in other residences, when you have a corner lot for a house, you, you know, there's setbacks to each lot. And traditionally, the way they make it, you know, you have a front setback, a rear setback, and side yard setbacks, right? And it's defined by the front yard, the side yards, and the rear yard. When you have a corner lot, traditionally the way it's worked in D.C. is that you had two front yards because two, of your, two sides of your property face the, face the street. And then you had two side yards because two of your two sides of your property faced other houses. Um, but uh, they just redid this, the, the zoning code in D.C. Like it just came out, like what, a month ago? Yeah, September. Right. Mm-hmm. So apparently they forgot to include <laughs> how to deal with a corner lot. In, how weird. In the, yeah, like the oh section gosh. all of a sudden is missing. What? And I couldn't find it. So I had to be calling the city for days trying to get an answer to it. And then they referred me to the Office of Planning. And then we oh. finally, one of our guys was down there. So they he went and he had to like ask people face-to-face. And they were told, yeah, so that's not in anymore. They didn't really want to admit that they left it up by mistake or on purpose or whatever. And they were like, so now you have to figure it out. You get to choose which one's your front yard. Huh. And it's like, well, what? how does that work? Wow. And then, it, and that, but it screws up what we're trying to do because now the house is literally built into the into what is a side yard. So yeah. all of a sudden the house is breaking the zoning that it wasn't breaking before. So it, it, it's a whole mess. But, yeah. you know, this sort of thing happens. I can only imagine over 100 years what has changed. Yeah. Yes. You know, if in a matter of months they're able to screw it up this way. In a matter wow. of years. 100 years now and so. you know getting back to the uh, to the cathedral one of my and i don't know what the tax structure is in, in spain but one of my uh issues would be that if by taking over all of that space to finish the cathedral as as claudia says displaces uh residents and leases uh that are surrounding those residences and leases are paying taxes when you expand the cathedral, if it's if their tax structure is anything like the U.S. Tra- tax structure, the church is not going to be paying taxes on that land, and that is w- where I would really have a problem with it. You know, you have land that is producing revenue through taxation that now is going to become nothing. Uh, you know, from the from the point of view of, of taxes, and um, that you know that opens a whole, a whole other can of worms. I think churches take in plenty, and I think they should be paying taxes on it. <laughs> but but <laughs> that's going in another direction. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Yeah, and that's cool. some interesting discussion in this store. Yeah. Uh, so let's go to this is a manufacturing. It's not really a story as much as three videos that uh, that you found, Ray, and it's all really about sort of a five axis, adding an axis to a lot of this machinery. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Well, yeah, I put in these videos, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming you guys had a chance to go <laughs> look through them. Um, yeah. Yes. Because, you know, everybody knows a laser, a laser cutter, you know, it, and, and even with some of these 3D printers, uh, stereolithography. Uh, but, you know, lasers are traditionally used to cut, you know, a lot of flat stuff in two dimensions, mm-hmm. really. Um, 
So uh, I put up this video to show that there are lasers already in existence in the industrial application uh, that can cut three-dimensional objects like, like tubes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, square tubes, rectangular tubes, round tubes, oval tubes. And in some uh, manufacturing components, it can actually cut the edges of irregular parts. So the the evolution of the laser is now not just a you know simple dummy machine that only works in two dimensions. Uh, very they're uh, available right now in uh, in industry that can cut in all kinds of directions. Um, and then you know, when you think about water jet, for example, like you've seen my water jet, and uh, you may not realize it, but my water jet is also a five-axis water jet, but um, the the two axes A and B are less obvious. They um, they only manipulate the head just slightly to compensate for the angle created at the cut. Uh, but this particular video shows a full five-axis water jet cutting a three-dimensional part, which is quite impressive. The evolution of that <laughs> of that technology, um, and then of course uh, we're all familiar with CNC routers and CNC milling machines. Uh, I put here a five-axis uh, milling machine. And, you know, this is just so our listeners can become more familiarized with, with uh, the level of technology that you may not be aware of. Uh, so that uh, a five-axis CNC uh, router can actually carve a piece of sculpture. Um, you can question whether it's art because it's reproducible exactly. So that, that's a whole separate question. But the ability of the machine to manipulate all these axes. And by the way, this is only five. There are machines that have nine and 12 axes. So <laughs> I didn't want to complicate things with with uh, the more complicated machines, but uh, just so that we can see, because I feel that a lot of this stuff that is industrial now is going to be scaled down like we've seen happening in the last 20 years for the, uh, the average person, the average maker, do-it-yourselfer. And I think uh, the same way we've seen 3D printing and laser cutting and all that uh, get reduced and, and even injection molding <laughs> to the desktop, uh, I think these three particular examples we might see, um, you know, probably in 10, 20 years uh, following the same pattern. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised to see a water jet get reduced as it is, you know, so you can, you can imagine that one of these days soon they'll add this fifth axis to that function you know oh yeah and i think it'll probably be sooner than 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 we think yeah 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 i think the most impressive one to me was the the water jet having the fifth axis um much more so than the the laser i've seen so the laser that i use that i go and use over at the the library here in dc already lets you um lets you engrave not so much cut on a uh cylindrical object like a glass or or, or a tube yeah that'll be a fourth Um, axis right yeah Yeah, it doesn't turn the laser like this one was doing um which is impressive because you know i like i a lot of these cuts have to be made on site by hand by a lot of people i'm thinking when you you see it cutting like a steel tube and i it'd be impressive to be able to do all of this in the in in manufacturing in on site on on the factory, you know, yeah. and come already assembled and whatnot. So, yeah, I was, I was impressed by it. It was very cool. What do you think about it, Claudia? Um, well, there isn't much I can add other than uh, one of the comments, I guess, on the CNC machine 
um, it was the way that it's displayed in the video is like a sculpting tool, right? A, to create this sculpture, like this three-dimensional sculpture. And um, what was interesting to me is like the finish as it's going, like you see this rough, uh, very rough finish. And I guess that depends on the different types of um, bits that are being used. And it'll be interesting to see, like you, you kind of miss the whole process of sm like smoothing its finish, like smoothing it, the product. Like how it looks, how it how it becomes smoother. Yeah. Um, and I don't I I don't know if they're using something else, if they're using a special bit. Oh yeah, um, well I can tell you uh, what it is is when you're when you're dealing with making things from from raw material, the first thing you do is you rough it. You you go around it and you you take roughing passes, and you take big chunks, great big chunks, as much as you can, as fast as possible, just to get rid of the material. And usually use a very rough, fat, coarse-cutting bit for that, and very large. And when you start uh, fine-tuning the surface, you use a round-nosed bit. Instead of being square, it's, the nose of it is, is round. So you can think about it when it comes in contact with the, the material, it's only touching at a very small spot. And then the mm -hmm. smaller the bit, the more resolution. Think of that as resolution. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also have to make more passes. And then the smaller the bit with a round nose, you get the closer your passes can get and you get this finer and finer detail. And so that's what happens. And of course, it's only like a five minute video. It, that probably took three days to carve, mm -hmm. which is what you don't yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't necessarily look like they changed the bit that much, which I think is why. Well, it, got, it started getting smoother and smoother. It didn't get like fully smooth. Like it could probably at some point end. Yeah, yeah. Like in the end or very close to the end, it looks a lot smoother. Um, yeah. And even I couldn't see the bit that they were using, you know, fully knowing the process. Uh, it was moving too fast to actually tell what it was. Yeah, yeah and I think that's the key that, to me is that it's really interesting. I agree with, with what you're saying, right, completely. I mean, that eventually this will be made accessible to the average consumer. Um, but a lot about manufacturing to, again, you know, like the, con the consumer or the average person is about the process as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting to understand that process or being able to visualize that process. And, and, and that's when my question came up. And I think it was it's really cool to be able to see all those videos um, also right next to each other. You know, you know, like you start developing this even higher appreciation for manufacturing yeah. as a whole and what tools you're using. So, right. Yeah, and, and if you become aware of the types of machinery that's available, you won't be confined in your design process to the types of machinery that you are aware of. Um, exactly. Now you say, wow, I didn't even know you could do this. Well, now this gives me other ideas and I can do this and I can do that. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Thanks. Yeah, cool. cool. Yeah, so definitely check out those videos. They'd be, they'll be in the description as well because I think they're definitely worth watching. Um, I don't, we're, we're not doing them justice with <laughs> the description, <laughs> descriptions of them. Um, because it's interesting to see that it was almost like a little propeller that came out of the, or fan blades that came out of the water jet. Yeah. Which was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Cool. All right, well, let's go on to the next story. So let's do it here, by the way. Okay. One. Two. Three. Four. Cool. Uh, all right, so let's see. The next story is, uh, let's go here. Uh, New York State. State makes blower door test mandatory. 
And um, I added this because I ran into this before um, with some clients here in, in the D.C. area. But it was interesting to see this is one of the first jurisdictions that's making this a requirement. Um, and for those that don't know, the blower, the, the door blower test, as they call it here, is basically a test so you can find where your house is not airtight, um, which goes to sort of uh, energy efficiency. Um, but I'm interested to think what you guys thought of this article. Who wants to go first? Claudia? <laughs> um, I found this interesting. I really like the article because it, the way it was written was very sarcastic. <laughs> so if any, if you know, if our if our listeners can read it, you'll, you'll hopefully you'll be as amused as I was. Um, one, I think the use for this particular, um, I guess. I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's a it's a test, right? It's, it's a test. It's a yeah. test, but it's. It's important in that, you know, you might see it as a nuisance, but, uh, for example, I'm I'm working with this community-based organization in Buzzard Point, and they're dealing with air quality issues and mm -hmm. dust from construction that's really close to the community, um, to the residents, and a lot of them are suffering from the from um, health problems because the dust filters through their apartment. And, um, and it's not just dust, but it's also um, emissions from trucks going right by because of all the construction that was already there. I mean, there's, you know, cement plants around there. So there's huge trucks that go by there. And um, there's probably, you know, probably more than 25% of the, of the residents in this community are children, too. So there's so many impacts, but the city refuses to address those air quality issues. And sometimes this, the, now, not even sometimes now, the residents have to constantly be proving that there are issues. So something like this would be really important for for a community like that. You know, if you if you were to be able to test their the these air gaps and, and maybe even see how much gets through, right? Mm -hmm. um, the and not just the the doors, but also the windows, because it's, yeah. and these you know a lot of these houses these homes are. Um, this isn't just uh, those kind of things. It also tests, you know, between the floor and the walls, how tight that seal is and things like and that. And that's exactly, yeah, because um, so some of these are, uh, most of these are rental, low-income rental units. So by landlords are not the greatest. And then the other, another percentage is public housing too, which is, you know, ran by the city and they need to do something about it as well. So I think in those cases, this is really important. And it would be really helpful for those communities. Yeah, what do you think about it, Ray? Uh, well, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, they don't cover this, but uh, the blower do door test is not something new. It's been around at least 30 years. It's not a new thing. It's been around a long time. Uh, most, uh, most people don't do it because they consider it an, an unnecessary expense. Uh, but uh, you've worked on some lead buildings, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, part of uh, part of the uh, process is to do a lot of uh, testing and verification of the building before they would even uh, grant you your uh, your rating. And um, I forget what they call it. There's a there's a special name for it. It's been so many years I don't remember what it's called. Uh, but uh, part of that is this exact test. Now, 
people used to do this voluntarily for themselves because they were paying uh, the bill on the energies uh, on the energy that they were spending. So having a uh, a house that is not so leaky would be important in order to conserve energy. And that's why this was adopted by the International Energy Conservation Code. So a test that's been around a long time, uh, this is the first time other than for certain requirements like uh, like LEED certification uh, that I've ever even heard of it becoming mandatory. So I think it's interesting. I think it's, it's a, a good step. And it only covers, of course, new construction or renovation. And I would wonder what the criteria is for renovation. If you were doing like, a kitchen renovation and nothing and you weren't touching anything else i don't think they'd make you do this but if you were doing like a 50 percent or more re- renovation they might make you look at making everything a little tighter so i think it's i think it's in a, a, a well use of uh of their power to to uh, regulate construction by requiring this yeah i would bet that if and i've not read the code and New York, what this guy adopted yet, um, but I would bet it's uh, they have different categories of renovation, um, and I, I'm trying to remember the numbers. I, I think once you pass num is one, two, and three, and I think number three is when you do any exterior work, ch- changing the size of openings or replacing windows. I would think at that point is when they make you do this test. Uh huh. One and two are minor renovations that usually only take place on the interior, and I bet at that point they're not making you do that because you're not really changing the envelope of the house. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's about time. I, I've ran into this, but it's always, it's always only been because the client itself had the money and the knowledge to want it. Yes. Not because it's requiring any way, shape, or form. So I found this very interesting. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, for a savvy client, it's a, it's a useful tool to hold the contractor accountable. It says, you're going to provide me a type building, and I'm going to mm-hmm. test it at the end of it. And if it doesn't meet... The, the minimum requirements, you are going to keep working on it until it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and it even goes, to, it starts to get into the methods of construction. You know, at what point do you put the windows in and the doors in while you're yeah. building something? Uh, yeah. So, because if you've got to test this and if it's leaky, then the way you would fix it, if you've already said, said put the brick up on a, a wood stud construction, it becomes harder for you to fix it at that point. Oh yeah. So and more expensive. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, if your contractor knows that you're going to be doing this before closing out the contract, he is going to be much more careful and attentive to the details. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they say that in there. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not just about window and doors, it goes to the vapor barrier and the ceiling of the exterior skin yeah. of the building itself. Cool. So and continuous air film in particular. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. All right. Well, let's go on to the next story. Uh, let's go to this one here. A student 3D prints his own braces for $60. I know, Claudia, you like this because you've had braces. Um, I've never had braces, but uh, Ray, did you have this story? Yes, I did. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, this is uh, one of those stories that just uh, kept popping up. I saw it like three or four times, and I said, well, let me go read it. And uh, I, I found it quite interesting. And uh, to be uh, truthful, it, it's not true braces as we are familiar with it. These are more like uh, the tray type retainers that you wear uh, in your mouth. It, yeah. So it's not like a full blown braces. 
But uh, yeah, this uh, college student decided that he was going to save the $8,000 it would have cost to have all this work done by making his own models and 3D printing all the different uh, retainers that he had to use. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who are not familiar, you know, you graduate, the, re the retainers keep graduating and changing slightly uh, as your teeth adjust so you can perfect your, your smile. And uh, he just took it upon himself. And yeah. it's uh, it's a little bit of a misleading number when they say $60. $60 only is the only uh, cost of the materials directly. Obviously, he was using uh, the uh, university's 3D printer uh, and their facility. So it's not a true cost. It's just what it happened to cost uh, him. But still, uh, pretty impressive that he, he did it at, at all. Well, I mean, I bet quite a few people could do it for that amount of money because, like, the, the, the 3D printers I've been using at the library right now, which the printer is free to use, they only charge you for the material, which they charge you at cost. What, whatever they pay for the material, that's what they're charging you for the filament. So, so I think there's more availability there than, than one would think to be able to, to do this. Yeah, but, and it's a process. Yeah. I mean, gosh, you know, like, this took me back to my... To ninth grade through eleventh grade in high school and having braces for three years <laughs> back in the nineties. <laughs> Not to age myself, but yeah, like it's it's an entire process though, because you have to also mold, get molds of your of your teeth as you're going. So I guess that's another you know, like use of different types of uh, machines that are available for makers and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting. Um, I I appreciated that at the end he says that you know like the liability issue of this because you know if people have asked him or have thought about you know maybe this could be a, a business because he also had to basically do a lot of research on orthodontic processes mm -hmm. right just to see how to calculate the the shifts in teeth and how that happens um and he was able to do that with his own stuff. Like when you when you test when you're working on on your own mm -hmm. body, there's less risk in that involved because you know like or li less liability. Well, right? there's no so liability. There's no liability. Um, now he was using like he's really smart because it, you know like he's basically using what he's paying for at the university, which is mm -hmm. the access and the use of all of the resources that are there. You know per semester. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really smart of him to do that. Um, so if it was only $60 plus something that he's already paying for, so he could have actually added the cost of using that, but offset it because it's, it was part of his education as well. And mm -hmm. this also helped his education too. So that was interesting. Um, yeah, like I would always, I, I also would recommend anybody to definitely use your retainers mm -hmm. <laughs> because they, your teeth do end up shifting. And that's the reason why he had to do this. Um, as he got grew older, or you know, do what I did, had retainers for three years and scarred you throughout your high school. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I mean, you weren't using it as recommended, is what you're saying. No, it was my my, my, my teeth was that jack. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. Um, but it was both. I think it was both because you, you had to go like. No, I would go over there off the time, but I think the yeah, my orthodontist was more like. Also, the cost of for low-income families, you know, at the time, you know, like 
I don't even know how my mom was able to afford it, honestly. So I'm sure that's one of the reasons why it took longer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as somebody that's never had braces, I can't relate. But uh, I think it's very ingenious of him to do it this way. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a business here because I think for, I mean, I don't know. But I would think for this sort of thing, you'd have to go through so many, like, testing and medical testing that you'd have to do and whatnot that it wouldn't be worth it. Oh, no, yeah. But, but yeah, it's cool. Cool nonetheless. Uh, oh, right, let's go to the next story. Uh, all right, so next story. Let's do one that I've actually wanted to put on here for a while. Called Why Brutalism is Sending Out an SOS. Um, again, because it's all about me. <laughs> the reason <laughs> and I. And your feelings. Yes, and my feelings. I, uh, I added this on here because I've always had a. Much like I have a soft spot for big churches, I've always had a soft spot for uh, brutalist buildings. Um, so if you could find me a big church that also happens to be a brutalist building, I probably want to move there. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I've always had an issue with people think brutalist buildings are just ugly or, or whatnot. I've always sort of found them strangely beautiful. And, uh, and I think we're at a point in time where brutalist architecture buildings are at an age that they, they need to start being replaced or added to or new uses need to be found for them. So they're at this sort of point in time where they they're either in jeopardy or they need to shift or they need to be rethought. So that's why I found this article interesting. Uh, I'm interested to think what you guys thought about it, Ray. What do you think about it? Well, I found it interesting as, as you were saying, uh, you know, that, that uh, period of time where, uh, you know, brutalist architecture was being produced re- quite regularly uh, is kind of, kind of over. You might find a, a project here and there that pops up. But, um, yeah, they, they have an age to them, and the ones that have not been torn down are in danger of being torn down. And a lot of these uh, that are covered in the article are, are projects that we studied uh, when we were in architecture school. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with you. I think that the brutalist buildings uh, were the first that really got my attention. And um, I remember clearly in my first set of interviews uh, when I was looking for an architecture job, uh, the I, you know they looked at my portfolio and at one place they said oh you know what that was RTKL it was RTKL they looked at my portfolio and they said uh, your design aesthetic is quite brutalist <laughs> and uh, and I said yeah I, you know it was quite um, a uh, a formative architecture for me mm-hmm. so I think that these buildings uh, you know do have a value and and they they should be uh, I'm, I'm one of those guys that, that I don't believe in, in hysterical preservation for the, for the sake of being hysterical mm-hmm. um, but uh, because some of these that are in danger are so um, are so pivotal in the development of the brutalist aesthetic that I think they deserve to be preserved as sculpture the same mm-hmm. way you would preserve a sculpture uh, so uh, it's a, quite an interesting article uh, for those of our listeners that are not familiar with this uh, type of uh, architecture. Be probably eye-opening if you've never even realized it, uh, but uh, but but quite interesting. Yeah. Cool. What, what about you, Claudia? What do you think about it? So, um, 
I have like I think in the last year I have grown a lot more um, critical of preservation, but more on the side of the his. How did you call it, right? The hysterical. The hysterical. <laughs> yeah. A, a little bit more on that side, um, because I don't I don't believe that new architecture is careful in addressing cultural heritage, and I don't think that it's been innovative enough to think outside the box and provide good design or great design. Um, and instead it, it does standard or substandard design just by cladding something in glass or just by emulating what other architects do. And, um, and it's just basically changing facades after facades after facades. And, that's, and they call that modern or contemporary architecture and it's kind of silly because it, it basically doesn't address community. So I appreciate the fact that there is this hype, like that's how the, that's how this article refers to it. It's a, as a new hype to preserve brutalist, but even it doesn't necessarily say the word preserve, you know, it's like an SOS. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and because I've, I've grown in the last year, you know, to appreciate and to, almost be like an advocate for present for proper preservation um you know i feel like that preservation is an act of community and it has to be an act of community not a regulation even because if it is an act of community then it it puts the buildings in a different um platform right rather than just being a built environment it is actually part of the community and it's part of the people and it's part of history and it's part of and it can grow and it doesn't have to be preserved in specific ways but it can be preserved how the community wants to and that's basically what this is doing because there's an sosbrutalist.org website that's attached to this and if you go to the website it is a cool website um first of all it's hashtag sosbrutalism so <laughs> let's use that on our twitters and um they have a map in there of all the brutalist buildings that, and this is um, a crowd-based map that people are putting all over the world that you know are putting together, and it's pretty cool. Like you start seeing how many brutalist buildings are in North America and Europe. Um, there's also timelines, like a timeline, so you can check how you know the different eras or years, decades that these buildings have popped up throughout the world. So I think it's pretty cool. Um, one last thing I would say about this is that I actually worked on a, on a master plan for a brutalist campus. And the minute that, you know, we were starting this, um, the meetings, the first thing I would hear from all of the um, administrators for this university here in the district um, was, oh, please get, you know, get rid of these ugly, ugly, ugly concrete buildings that we have. This is horrible. This is not what we should do we should be you know experiencing every day and uh, we need something modern we need something light we need something good and it was about aesthetics not so much about um, the role of that university the community or the needs you know if they would have said well these are we have you know very important needs because it is a public university that would have been a different perspective but if it's aesthetics that they're only concerned with, then you know it's it's not going to solve the problem. 
it's just going to clot the like putting glass on top of these buildings or destroying some of these buildings it was just going to solve it was going to clad um aesthetically like the problems it wasn't going to address the issues and that's exactly you know probably now going three to five years later that's exactly the case and slowly the university's moving forward and i'm really happy about that but it is sad that you know we're not thinking about preservation as an active community yeah, and uh, I think one of the things you both have said about, you know, the preservation, like, I I worked a long time on historic preservation, so I may have a slightly different view on it than you guys, but I think what you both, what, especially you just said, Claudia, is that when preservation becomes about what something looks like, and they want to preserve two buildings that might be of the same age, but one should be preserved because it looks like a, like an old building, <laughs> Like, you know, it's made out of brick and it has a certain colonial look to it. That is not a reason to preserve something. And I think one of the biggest cases in D.C. right now is the, the FBI building. Mm -hmm. That's a building that so many people want to tear down. And if there's a building that should be considered historic, it's that building. Because that is the first FBI building in the nation. And all of the historic people that have gone through that building is just... I don't want to get too much into it. We have a discussion one day about what historic preservation means, but but yeah. Anyway, that that's how I feel about this. You're yeah. an SOS brutalist. <laughs> Brutalism. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up that the FBI building uh, in DC. That's in in a lot of movies. I mean, it's an iconic yeah. building. Right. Uh, a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies, and um, you know, it kind of also reminds me of uh, of the federal courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yeah. which is you know falls into that category too, and even well even the library, uh, the Marcel Brewer Library, uh, while not not what you would consider like a true brutalist, I think it would still fall into that uh, category. It's a beautiful building, mm -hmm. um, and it's more about the space. That's what I like about this style of architecture is that the material is raw and unapologetic and unadorned, and and really you can start concentrating uh, in the you know, about the carving of spaces and the treatment of light and in places where you have harsh sun, uh, you know, these these uh, protruding overhangs that protect what little glass there is, uh, you know, become much more prominent design features. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, <laughs> uh, there's something to be said about this architecture. Yeah. And, uh, and I agree with you. I, I, don't, I think just because it's old doesn't mean it needs to be preserved. That yeah. is not that is not enough of a criteria. Yeah, cool. And and that's part you know, that's part of what people get hysterical about it. Oh, this building's a hundred years old. I'm like, so what? There are there are you know, buildings that are a thousand years old in Europe that they don't mind carving up and and adding on to. I mean it, so what's a hundred years old? Big deal. <laughs> right. It, has, it doesn't it mean has anything. To be significant in one way or another. Absolutely. Right. Cool. Well, well it's a good story i think all right well i think that's uh gonna be the end of this segment and let's move on to the product of the week let's do it all right the product of the week this week is another drawing product and uh, i added on here it's called the slate and uh, the website for it is iskn.co um, I think we've discussed other sort of drawing 
um, tools like this one before, and I think it's big, anybody that's listened to the show for a while is, doesn't come as a surprise that I have a soft spot for any kind of drawing, <laughs> drawing product of the week like this. So I added this on here because I, you know, I kind of liked it, and it's basically, it to, to me what was unique about it is that it's yeah, it's a tablet that you have put your own paper on, but it also lets you use the pens, pencils, or whatever drawing tool you use that you normally use with it. So, so I, it's not going to be a surprise. I'm quite fond of it, but I'd like to hear what you guys thought about it. What do you think about it, Claudia? <laughs> um, I think it's pretty cool. I think you need a lot of different components for this. So I, I didn't check the price. That's the one thing I didn't check, but uh, we'll talk about it later. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty cool thing that you... And, and it's also like a simple solution, right? Like, so you have this specific, uh, I don't know, like tablet in which you, you, you clip, like a clipboard, a digital clipboard, in which you put your paper and then you can use whatever you want, whatever type of paper you want, whatever type of uh, drawing tool you want. And um, you basically carbon copy almost that drawing onto a digital. Huh? You're aging yourself again. <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody uses that anymore. <laughs> I actually saw like a couple of carbon copy notepads the other day, which was really funny. I thought it was very in the tea shop. Is that where you saw? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it was. I mean, it's basically like that. So I think it's pretty cool. Now it's a pretentious. It's why did I say ostentious? Ostentatious tool. Um, it's definitely it's French made. Mm-hmm. So it's made in France. And, um, yeah, so I, I got to check out the price because it seems like it's probably I'll tell you what it is. Expensive. It's $169. All right, see? It's, yeah. And you still need an iPad or a computer or something else to to use. Well, yeah, but, okay, wait, what do you think about it, Ray? <laughs> okay. Well, um, uh, I found it interesting from the uh, the technological point of view. I mean, some of the things that we uh, have looked at before, uh, like the moleskin, I, I really didn't um, have too strong a feeling about. But what's interesting about this is that it is, <coughs> excuse me, it is not eliminating the original paper drawing. You are still drawing on paper, um, and it is simultaneously digitizing your drawing. So. Uh, you're drawing it once, and it's creating a a digital duplicate that you can, you know, manipulate later however you see fit. But the original is still being created, and in, in that regard, I think it's quite valuable because uh, you still only have one original. You can have, you know, as many digital copies as you want. But for me, it makes that that original on paper with pencil or ink or whatever you're using much more valuable, if if to no one else, to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it. It is um, interesting because whenever we sit and draw and design something, we're all, we always start with paper. That's how we always begin. And so this is taking that beginning step and um, you know plugging it into all the digital stuff that we end up using for production anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's actually in one regard kind of eliminating one step uh, because you don't have to do it again or try to digitize it or reduplicate or any of that. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of interesting in, in that respect. And on the other hand, is <laughs> uh, is it something that's really necessary? 
I think that there's a there's a market for this. I think that it, particularly in the graphic arts uh, industry, it might be quite valuable. Uh, for me personally, uh, I don't find it interesting for me, but I but I find it interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't do a lot of this kind of artwork that's sort of portrayed in the on the site, but I think. I think especially because it lets you use your own utensils. You know, the moleskin one that we have looked at before, you had to use their pen. And yeah, their have, pen and pad. Right, yeah. A lot of them you have to use the stylus that comes with the device. This, it's actually, there's actually a little ring that you put around your pen or pencil or whatever it might be, and that lets it track it somehow. And that's, yes. how, you, that's how you do it. And I, I just think it's, to me, it's... It's. I know you. You think it's unnecessary and ostentatious. Was it ostentatious? But <laughs> I think it's bordering bordering on genius. <laughs> so and it's pressure sensitive too. I thought yeah. that was uh, interesting as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and you can change the color because you you let you, you have to tell it if you're writing with a different color. <laughs> you have to tell it what color you're writing with. The, I don't know. I, I think it's bordering on genius. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Not for me personally, but but interesting. Like, I think this would make me want to draw more. Oh. Because none of that, but it also has a memory, so you don't have to have the iPad with you. You don't have to have the thing with it. That I like. You yes. can take it with you as you're drawing outside, and then you you upload once you get home. Mm -hmm. You know. Now, did you notice that the pen that it came it, it comes with? Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it was reminiscent of the uh, of the technical pens that you that we used to use. Oh yeah, in, yes. in architecture. Yeah. Yeah, the shape of it, the form that it has, reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, 170. It's in pre order right now. You can't have it yet. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if when it comes out, I, I'm in the market for something like this. This is right now, this is the one I'm buying. So, cool. Uh, so let's move on to what are we working on? All right, so let's talk real quick about what are we working on. Um, Claudia, why don't you go first, because you were just at something this morning. Yeah, um, I attended the DC STEM Summit, uh, and it's by the DC STEM Network, which was really interesting. Um, it was the second annual, basically. They've been going at this now, hopefully for the third year, because it took them a year to get organized and stuff. Um, it's... Uh, by um, STEM educators. It's a network predominantly by um, all sorts of STEM, DC, District of Columbia, uh, STEM educators, uh, teachers, both in school and also outside of the school um, teachers or training, or not, not training, outside of the school teaching, meaning um, um, programming after school, after school programs and that are related to science, technology, um, engineering, engineering and, and math, and also art to a degree. And there was a, yeah, so I'm gonna be uh, grabbing a lot of the networks, tapping a lot of the networks that I developed from today. Uh, I went there as made podcast and check out our, our Twitter handle because I posted some information there about uh, data about STEM here in the district, and also the role of community organizations and um, nonprofits, and even organizations like like ours, like made podcasts. And well, it's not an organization, but the content that we're creating is often 
um, geared towards or can be used by educators, parents, and hopefully students as well. So that's sort of like a really cool goal. And um, there's definitely a space for us and for all makers in, in that particular field of STEM. So yeah, so that's what I'm going to be working on this week. And also contacting some more people that we met in Maker Fair. So I'm going to be doing a lot of made podcast work. Cool. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's the STEM movement, much like the Maker movement and the Maker Fair movement, I think it's something that we need to look at as we move forward doing the show and the work that we're doing. So yeah, it's very cool. Good, good. What about you, Ray? What have you been working on? Um, well, I've been, I've been kind of busy, <laughs> yeah. um, in this, uh, this little hiatus that we, that we took, um, I put out, uh, three more videos. Uh, one is, uh, you, you remember my living room boat? Mm-hmm. Well, the living room boat is no longer in the living room <laughs> and it's, it's, it's approaching, uh, being finished or at least being able to water test very, very soon. So I put out a, a video on, uh, bending the plywood. I'm not sure if you got a chance to see that. Yeah, I've seen uh, that one. Mm-hmm. I call it really more like torturing plywood because it does not want <laughs> to do what I wanted it to do. But uh, the way I, I always say, if you can't outsmart a piece of wood, you better just hang it up. <laughs> yeah. you got to be able to outsmart a piece of wood. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. So, um, in fact, I got a, uh, that was part three. I got part four will be coming out this Thursday. Be uh, uh, putting that on my uh, YouTube channel, and then uh, interestingly enough, I uh, another project that I worked on that I put a video for was there's a, another YouTube another YouTuber. His name is Matt uh, Cremona, and he's interesting because he's a woodworker, but he's building a a sawmill, a band sawmill in his mm-hmm. backyard. And uh, I'm not sure if you got a chance to see that uh, what he was doing. Uh, quite impressive. I, I'm really very impressed that he is building this machine in his backyard with uh, with just some basic hand tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing that he couldn't make because of its degree of accuracy was the shaft that drives uh, the uh, the drive wheel of the bandsaw. Yeah. So uh, he asked me to make that for him, and, uh, and I made a video of the process. And uh, I'm actually quite surprised it's been so popular because I do that all you know that's all the time. We're always making this kind of stuff, so. It's not that big a deal for me, uh, but to be able to tie it to the work that he's doing, a lot of his viewers found very, very interesting to see how that component got made. Hmm. And, cool. um, and of course, it was Halloween during this time, and uh, my wife's handed me a pumpkin on Halloween. She's handed me a pumpkin and says, go cut me something. <laughs> so I had very little choice. I went over to the water jet, and uh, I, I carved a pumpkin uh, with the water jet, and it took uh, took three and a half minutes to cut it. Yeah, I think that one was sort of the most in- more interesting one when I was I watched them because I was fully expecting that thing to just explode when you started cutting into it <laughs> with the water. Yeah, jet. no, it went completely right through it. It didn't yeah. was not affected, not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very very cool. Yeah, I, I think and, and yeah, you and I talked about this the other day when we were talking. Um, but I guess the back of I, I was interested to to hear what what happened to the back of the other, the other side of the pumpkin as the water jet was cutting through it. But you said it just sort of made a big hole. Yeah, it just yeah. made a big hole. Yeah. Um, what you know, the the water jet loses resolution, if you will, yeah. and um, and energy as it cuts through. And normally we cut at fifty thousand psi with abrasive. Mm-hmm. In this case, I cut at uh, twenty thousand psi with no abrasive, mm-hmm. and I thought it was 
you know, I was going through there pretty fast, but it wasn't fast enough, so it, it kind of blew out the back of it. Um, it didn't really matter because that gave me a place to put the light inside of it and all that. So, uh, but I think for next year, I'm going to make a few of these mm -hmm. and uh, I might even make some Franken pumpkins. <laughs> like, they get all kinds of different gourds and then uh, stitch them together to make a, like a Franken pumpkin. Oh, okay, I thought you were going to mix it with metal or, or something. It could be. I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure how, what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, uh, for myself, I've actually, while we've been away, I've also worked on a few projects and I, I've got some photos and some video that I got to put out for them. Um, I think one of the things, uh, our anniversary was in October and Claudia had asked me to make, uh, she was like, make me something <laughs> for anniversary. So I was like, okay, well, and I decided to make her a couple of earrings or some earrings. So I've, I've got some photos and stuff of some I laser cut, some I bought some parts that I put together. So I'll put out a video on that. Um, still working on these lockers. I finally got them cut to size and I've got all the pieces ready to just assemble. So I'll be putting that together hopefully this weekend and uh, or finishing it up this week maybe. And then uh, the last thing is I went this weekend and I laser cut some stuff over at the library. Uh, a project that uh, I, I think we, we had talked about, Ray. Um, this uh, wood sort of puzzle that goes together. Yes. Uh, for uh, it's a Doctor Who character. Um, so I, I've got all the pieces cut now to sort of test it out and put it together and see how it turns out. So hopefully oh, okay. I'll put uh, some stuff on that as well. Cool. But yeah, so a couple of a couple of small projects that all are working the way through. Cool. Well, I mean, I think that's that's the show pretty much. Um, Oh, I did want to mention one thing before we ended the show. I know we've gotten, I know, I know, Ray, you had somebody mention to you, like, after the episode we did where we ranked the TV's makers, you had somebody then mention uh, the Jimmy DeResta. They thought he should have been ranked. Um, and I had somebody, well, my mom actually mentioned, she, she listened to the, she listens to the show and she was like, oh, you guys didn't mention Carol Duvall and the Carol Duvall show. Um, which I was not familiar with her <laughs> at all, actually. Um, and I asked, I asked you guys, and you guys didn't know her either, right? Yeah, right. but I'd like to correct that. Your mom also said, you guys didn't feature that many women. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's, no, what right. That's what she said. Actually, she said you didn't, you didn't feature any women, which we did have one. We did have one, yeah. Um, and we had, just because of time, we cut out. We were going to mention Martha Stewart, but we ended up cutting. We ended up having to cut that out. Um but yeah, so I, you know, I didn't know who Carol Duvall was. I've looked her up since. She had a show from, excuse me, from 94 to 2005. And it's a very, it's most of crafts show. I guess she's sort of a predecessor to Martha Stewart. Um, so yeah, I mean, if anybody else has other people that they think we should have mentioned, you know, let us know. We'll mention them after the show as it goes through. So... Uh, thank you Jose's mom for listening always yes <laughs> um, apparently so she listens to every episode she does she listens to the even show this more. one yeah she listens to the show more than Claudia does <laughs> oh really <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be too hard to do though <laughs> um, so why don't we tell people where they can hear more about each of us why don't you start right um, you can find out more about me at the uh, at my YouTube channel uh, you know all kinds of things about building different uh, things and my uh, homemade lathe Facebook group. Cool. That uh, 
that, you know, those links are always so weird. So mm -hmm. it's better just to follow the links. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have links to all of that uh, on the show notes. Claudia? Uh, you can follow me at the city ecologist uh, on Twitter or the city Um Also, even on Twitter, Claudia or DC Barrigan. So at DC Barrigan. And, um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, and you can find me. I'm at City Aperture, both on Twitter and on Facebook and on the internet. It's www.cityaperture.com. Um, and you can find the show at, you can email the show at it's info. Info yeah, at madepodcast.com. Made or each, each, each of us, you know, Claudia mm -hmm. at madepodcast.com or Jose at madepodcast.com or Ray madepodcast.com and we're also at twitter on admadepodcast um, yeah so if you like the show please uh, you know, email us or leave a review or tell somebody about it uh, or complain yes yeah if you don't like the show send Ray an email or, or, <laughs> or keep it to yourself <laughs> that's all right too you can keep it to yourself <laughs> well I mean if they're going to complain in public they should at least include a link to the show Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, you, uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine too. Yeah. Promote us while you're yeah. complaining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let people know exactly where to find that show you hate. Yes. <laughs> I like that, right? Exactly. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, yeah, that's the end of the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thanks again. See you next time. Bye-bye.